wonderful Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2 with me this evening. The book of Revelation in the second chapter. Good to have with us Brother Clint and Sister Donna Kearns. Brother Kearns pastors up in Crossville, Tennessee. We've known each other for many, many years. And many years ago they came here and helped us put together a youth choir CD. And I called him, I guess a few months ago, to see if we could do it again. And this week, that's what we've been doing, Monday night for three hours. Uh, the kids were in here singing, recorded 12 songs, and then throughout the day, just about all day long, uh, putting instruments and parts and all of that, and working hard, and uh, good to have them in the service, and appreciate all the help that they have been to us this week. Revelation chapter number 2, in the series on Revelation, we are at the church at Smyrna, Revelation 2 and verse number 8, and to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, these things at the first and the last, which was dead and is alive. I know thy works and tribulation and poverty, but thou art rich. And I know the blasphemy of, which the, of them which say they are Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. Fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison, that you may be tried. And ye shall have tribulation ten days. Be thou faithful unto death, and I'll give thee a crown of life. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. He that overcometh shall not be hurt of the second death. Thirty-five miles south of Ephesus sat the second largest city in Asia, the city of Smyrna. It was a fabulously wealthy city. It was as equally as debauched. Because wealth and depravity seemed to follow each other. And nowhere was the marriage between affluence and wickedness more pronounced than in the city of Smyrna. And so Christ instructs John to pen second letter to a second church. And it is to the church in Smyrna that he directs his remarks. And the first thing that we note about the church of Smyrna is how little we know about the church of Smyrna. We do not know when it was started. We don't know how it was started. We don't know who started it. History has no record of the origin of the church at Smyrna. It is usually thought that it was started sometime around Paul's Ephesus ministry in Acts 19, either by Paul himself or maybe some believers from the church at Ephesus that went there and planted that church, but we don't know. The church is not mentioned anywhere else in the scriptures. In fact, the word Smyrna is only found in this passage. It's not found anywhere else in the word of God. The two special features of this particular letter is that it is the shortest of the seven letters. And it is one of two, Philadelphia being the other, in which Christ gives no rebuke to this church. Now, from the clues that are found in this very short letter, we would think that most likely it was a small church and it was a poor church, but it was a special congregation in the heart of Christ. Now, for just a few minutes, as we walk our way through this text, I want you to notice several features about this particular church. And the first is, I want you to notice the place where they lived. The place where they lived. Now, in most cases, 
the city that a church is planted in has little bearings on the church itself. We could relocate our church to a number of cities across America and still be the exact same church that we are right now. In fact, I know a church that actually did that very thing. I know a church that was in Colorado years and years ago. And there was a downturn in employment and a lot of men lost their jobs. And there was a great hiring or a lot of jobs in the oil industry in Texas. And a lot of men from that church in Colorado relocated to Austin, Texas to work a job there. In fact, so many people were moving there, but they didn't want to leave their church. And the church literally, they didn't pick up their building, but the church literally moved their location and the church moved from Colorado to Austin, Texas. Today it is Capital City Baptist Church. That church started in Colorado and today it exists in Texas. Where we are, has very little bearing on what we are as a church. But that was not true of the church at Smyrna. Because of the seven churches, it would have been more difficult to be a church and a Christian in Smyrna than any other city. Because these precious believers face more dangers and persecutions and tribulations than any church in any other city. They could have had much more liberty and security and better buildings, but where they were shaped the church in a very profound way. Smyrna, like Ephesus, we talked about Ephesus last week, but Smyrna was a commercial center of Asia. It would eventually surpass Ephesus as the chief city of Asia, and so they went to help and self-proclaimed themselves as the pride of Asia. The local chamber of commerce even minted coins that said, first of Asia in beauty and size, promoting their pride in their city. That a long history dates thousands of years back, and most of their history has been forgotten until about 300 B.C. By 600 B.C., think Isaiah. By 600 B.C., the city had fallen into absolute, complete ruins. It was a ghost town, buildings overgrown, vegetation everywhere, and, and it was uninhabited. And several hundred years later, Alexander the Great came to the ruins of that city, and he vowed to rebuild it to its former glory. And Alexander the Great died before he could do that. And one of his generals, remember four generals, one of his generals, Lysicomus, decided that he would rebuild the city. That was around 300 B.C. When this letter is written, we are around 100 A.D., so we are 400 years later that Smyrna literally has risen out of the ashes to become one of the chief cities of Asia Minor. By the way, today Smyrna is the only one of the seven cities that still exists. Izmir, Turkey. Third largest city in Turkey, population of 3 million, is ancient Smyrna. Now, the name Smyrna, the name Smyrna comes from the Greek word for myrrh, which was a gum-like resin that was extracted from trees, or, and, and it was used for things like perfume and, and, and incense and mostly for embalming bodies. It's believed that myrrh was one of the chief exports of, of Smyrna. That may be how the city got its name, I'm not sure. 
I know that when you look in Scripture that you find myrrh used in a lot of different ways. And, and so it was a very common substance with a whole lot of different usages. And because myrrh was used for embalming bodies, then it was also a symbol for suffering. And that's fitting because the church at Smyrna suffers more than any other church. By the way, a little side note that has nothing to do with this church. Myrrh was connected often in the first coming of Christ. Do you remember the wise men that presented him gold, frankincense, and myrrh? Myrrh. And do you remember that they offered him myrrh while on the cross and, 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 and that it was used in his burial by Joseph of Arimathea? So several times you find myrrh connected in his first coming because he came to suffer for you and I. Interesting thing, in Isaiah 61 and verse 11, he's coming again. And Gentile kings are going to go to Jerusalem and offer him gifts, gold, frankincense, but not myrrh. It's omitted. Myrrh is never connected to his second coming. Because the first time he came, he came as a suffering Savior. It's appropriate. The second time he's coming, he's not coming to suffer. He's coming as a sovereign one. Therefore, myrrh will not be connected with his second coming. Now, in every ancient city of the Roman Empire, paganism and idolatry abounded. Ephesus, the main cult, was the goddess of Diana or Artemis. We talked about that. The whole city worshipped that. Acts 19 says the whole city was given to the worship of Diana. In fact, in Acts 19, they were in an uproar and the men got down into the streets and for two hours they screamed, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. That was their patron goddess. Well, Samaritan was not to be outdone in idolatry and they too had their own patron goddess it was a vile religion to the cult of Cybele, C-Y-B-E-L-E. And of all the cults and paganism in the Roman and Greek world, none was more debauched than the cult of Cybele. Now, I don't find Greek mythology very interesting. Because when you're reading Greek mythology, you're reading something that is not true. Correct? It's like science fiction. If it is science, it's not, it's, it's not fiction. So how can it be science fiction? It is one or the other, all right? So I've never understood that. And the thing about all of the Greek gods and goddesses and, and all of that is there are so many versions of their stories trying to like keep up with the lie because there's no real history behind any of them. But Cybele was called by, by, all, uh, by all the great mother of the gods. She was worshipped as the universal motherhood. They believed that fertility was her special power and all pre-reproductive life from plant animals to mankind was all under her control. And according to the fictitious story, Cybele was the offspring of Zeus. And when Cybele was born, the story is that the child was neither male nor female. The term would be herma her 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 hermaphrodite. Is that the term? And, and, and the gods were terrified inside the angel of, of, of the child. And Zeus had the male organs removed, transforming the child into the female Cybele. And so because castration or mutilation was part of the legend of Cybele, and all of the rituals of worship involved mutilation and castration. 
The priestesses of Saibia were castrated males who dressed as women, portrayed themselves as women to more closely align themselves with Saibia. They altered their physical appearance as much as they were able so that it is said that when they were in public, you couldn't tell if they were male or female. You think gender reassignment is a new thing. Oh, no, it's satanic, and it's an old thing is what it is. Every year on March 24th, the priests would come in to the temple of Sibyl and they would work themselves into a frenzy and they would slash themselves with knives and splatter blood all over the altar as a sacrifice to their goddess. It was called the Day of Blood and it was a gory, violent ritual and it was revered as the highest act of worship to that goddess. The largest temple in Smyrna was to Sibyl and the largest temple in the world to Sibyl was in Smyrna. And it's just a small picture of where they lived. But then secondly, I want you to notice the person whom they followed, verse number 8. Unto the angel of the church of Smyrna write these things at the first and the last, which was dead and is alive. Now, in these seven letters, I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on Christ's introduction because so much has been said and so much has been written about that. I will just say, you can go back to the vision in chapter 1 and you can match the description in chapter 1 to the descriptions given in chapter, in chapter 2 and 3. They're taken from the vision in chapter 1 and you can go back and you can compare that. But I will just mention two things to you quickly. These things set the first and last. Smyrna boasted they were first. It was on their coins. We're first in beauty and we're first in size. Christ says, I can beat that. I'm first and the last. And of course, that's a direct quote from Isaiah 44 and verse 6 and Isaiah 48 and verse 12. There it is talking about Jehovah God. Here it's talking about Jesus. Jesus making the same claim as Jehovah God. First and last. What does that matter? Why does it matter? On Sundays, I am always here first. I always beat you to church. I am never last. Never. I am always first. You'll never beat me. But I am never last. But would you agree with me that whoever is here first and whoever is here last is going to see everything that goes on while we're in church? Right? If you come in late, if you leave early, you're liable to miss something. Something may happen, but because you wasn't first, because you wasn't last, you missed it. But if you are first and last, then you see everything going on in the church. Christ says, I was there when you were founded. I was there when you were prospering. I was there when the first pangs of persecution were there. I was there when the tribulation reached its full force of the Roman Empire. And I will be there to welcome you to your reward. I am first and last. And then which was dead and is alive. That's literally the story of Smyrna. 600 BC, the city was dead. And for 300 years, the city was in collapsed ruins, but they literally had a resurrection of sorts. They literally rose, rose out of the ashes 
And it was something that would resonate with them. So Christ says, I too have had my own resurrection. And to those persecuted Christians, it would have been great comfort. He says, I was dead. And everybody sitting in that church knew somebody who had been killed for Christ. And everybody sitting in that church knew it was very likely that they too would give their life to Christ. And Christ says, I just want you to know, I've been through death too. I just want you to know that if you face death, I want you to understand that I have faced that as well. However, was dead and am alive. Death was a temporary interruption on his eternal life and you and I share the same life in Christ so that we know that our death will be just a temporary interruption to our eternal existence. The first person whom they followed. Then notice thirdly the problems that they faced in verse number 9. I know thy works in tribulation and poverty but thou art rich and I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. Now here's what's interesting to me. He says the exact same things to them that he says to Ephesus. I know thy works. You remember that? But when he mentioned it to Ephesus, he named their works. Well, look back at it. Chapter 2 again. Look at verse 2. I know thy works and thy labor, and thy patience, how thou canst not bear them which are evil. Thou hast tried them which say they are apostles, and are not, hast found them liars, and hast borne, and hast patience, and for my name's sake hast labor, and hast not fame. He, he is naming their works. He says this morning, I know thy works, and he doesn't name any. He just says, I know thy works, and doesn't mention any. Have you ever done any service for Christ that was not Huh? Have you ever had somebody brag on somebody else's ministry, but they forgot to brag on yours? Huh? I, I, I could give a personal illustration here, and I, I, I don't want to, so I'm not going to. Christ says, I know thy works, but he does not name them. But he does know them. He does know them. Now, now notice, notice, notice the problems they face. He says, I know thy works and tribulation. Now it's a very long history. I'm not going to go into it. But Smyrna was fiercely loyal to the Roman Empire. They were the first city in Asia to build a temple to the Dea Roma, the goddess of Rome, the spirit of Rome. And they did that to show their allegiance to Rome. Other cities would follow emperor worship, but Smyrna was the very first one. And the city passionately idolized everything about Rome. Now we look at Rome and we look at an evil empire, and it was. But in that day, Rome, many, many citizens were, were glad to be Roman citizens. The pox were out of the peace of Rome. They, they did, it was a good thing to live under Rome if, if, in that day. But, but, but they, they, they were proud of that. In fact, they were so proud of being the citizens of Rome, even to the point that they required every citizen to burn incense to the emperor every year to prove their allegiance. And they were loyal. In 26 AD, 26 AD, the Roman Senate passed a resolution that they would build a temple to the magnificent Tiberius somewhere in Asia. 
And many cities vied for the privilege. And Rome chose Smyrna as favor, as payback for their loyalty. In fact, there's a story even told about a Roman army that was hard in battle. They had not come prepared for the long, cold winter. And the Roman soldiers were, were out in battle and they were freezing and their clothes were not sufficient. And when the citizens of Smyrna heard it, they took the clothes off of their back and they rushed out to the battlefield and gave the clothes to those Roman soldiers just to prove that we are proud to be Roman citizens. But a city that is fiercely loyal to Rome, a city that is given to emperor worship is not tolerant of Christians who don't share in that same worship. Emperor worship is no problem for pagans. I mean, just add one more God to the list. But it does pose a huge problem for the Christians. It's like today. If you don't worship your culture today, you are the bane of society. If you don't, if you don't worship the emperor, then you're racist, you're homophobic, you're a hate monger, you're a fanatic that the world loves to hate. You were a traitor to the cause if you did not worship what everybody else worshipped. And so Christians in the emperor-loving Smyrna were persecuted. It's interesting, myrrh, they would take the flower and they would crush the flower for that myrrh to come out. And the flower is crushed and the fragrance comes out of that crushing. Strange thing about that fragrance is that it was bitter to the taste. It was sweet to the smell. And the church, like that flower, is crushed by the persecutions, bitter to the taste, but the fragrance went all the way up to heaven. Lives that are filled with bitterness, but their testimony of sweet fragrance to Christ. So he mentions their persecution, tribulation, then he mentions their poverty. Thy works in tribulation and poverty, but thou art rich. Smyrna was a wealthy city, but Christians didn't share in the wealth. Poverty is mentioned in the context of suffering. So their persecution led to their poverty. Say, so how was that? Trade unions denied them membership. Young men had trouble landing jobs with good wages. And soldiers hindered them from getting to work or setting up shop. And pagan merchants refused to do business with them. And their businesses were boycotted. They were poor in a rich city. But what a divine paradox. Because... To the culture of Smyrna, the Christians were failures in life because pagans often viewed poverty as punishment by the gods. And they've got to be punished by the gods because they won't worship the emperor and worship all of these other cults. And, and the pagans worship in ornate temples. And, and the Christians, they worship in homes and caves. And, and the city prospered and then had wealth. And the Christians are destitute and they are, are impoverished. But, but heaven sees things differently than the world sees. They are poor then he adds, but thou art rich. You have treasures the Roman Empire will never be able to take away from you. But then he mentions their pressure. In verse 9 again. I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews and are not. What are the synagogue of Satan? Smyrna had a very large Jewish community and the Jewish community hated the Christians. Slander is a sin that is strictly forbidden in the Torah. That didn't count if you were using that against Christians. And they spoke blasphemously of them. 
We don't know what form that it took, but they faced public shame and humiliation and scorn and lies and, and false charges and dragged into court unjustly and slandered and, and, and accused. And, and the pagans hated them because they wouldn't worship the Romans and, or, or the Roman emperor. And the Jews hated them because they preached Jesus Christ. And how many of you know that men will believe a lie quicker than they believe the truth? So a smear campaign is launched against this church. When they took communion, they accused them of being cannibals. They called them infidels for not worshiping in pagan temples. When they talked of loving one another, they twisted that into something perverted. They accused Jesus of blasphemy. Matthew chapter 12, Jesus turns around and says, you are the ones who are the true blasphemers. In fact, Jesus says, you're not even real Jews. The Jews are fiercely proud of their heritage as a people so how can Jesus say they say they are Jews and are not? You are physically, but you are not spiritually. You are Jews by birth, but there is nothing about you that is befitting of Jews. You have Jewish blood in your vein, but you are not worthy of the name. Your synagogue is a synagogue of Satan. Satan is the driving influence behind everything that you do in your synagogue. And all of it adds up to a persecuted church. They live in a vile city surrounded by an evil cul-de-sac building, other idolatrous religions. Paganism is baked into everything, the commerce, everything there. People would avoid shopping in your market if they knew that you were a Christian. The large Jewish community hated them, constantly lying and spreading rumors about them. In fact, it would be hard, and I'm watching the time, it would be hard to pass by Smyrna without saying a word about probably the greatest Christian who ever lived there, a man named Polycarp. Polycarp was a disciple of John the Baptist. He was probably the last surviving person to personally know one of the apostles. May have been the pastor of the church even when this letter was written. Don't know. He did become pastor at some time. And Polycarp was mur martyred in Smyrna around 160 AD. His death is the first recorded martyrdom of the church outside of the New Testament scripture. And the story is that the Jewish community stirred a riot up in the city by falsely accusing him of things. And a warrant for his arrest was issued. A search party found him in an upper room of a cottage. There was no trial. He was brought directly to the stadium. It was filled with people there watching the games. And the sheriff arrested him and rode him into the city and into the stadium on a donkey. It was meant to be humiliating. And when they rode Polycarp into that stadium on that donkey and the people recognized Polycarp, the entire stadium went into an uproar. Couldn't wait to see the death of Polycarp. The proconsul was there and he spoke to Polycarp. And he tried to get Polycarp to recant. He knew that Polycarp was not guilty of any crime. He knew it was just the Jews that wanted to see more bloodshed that hated the Christians. He tried everything that he could to get Polycarp to recant. And Polycarp said, 86 years have I served my Lord and he has done me no wrong. How can I now blaspheme my king and my savior? So finally, the proconsul turned him over to the executioner. They were going to burn him at the stake. It was the Jews that went out and gathered wood and sticks to build the fire even though it was on the Sabbath day. It's okay to break the Sabbath as long as their hatred is driving it. 
They took Polycarp, they tied his hands behind his back, they tied him to the stake, they piled the wood around him, and they set it on fire. And there are eyewitnesses that wrote the account. We can actually read eyewitnesses' account that says when the fire started, it burned an ark around Polycarp, but it would not touch Polycarp. It would not touch his flesh. They tried several times, and the fire refused to burn Polycarp. Finally, a soldier came up with a lance or a spear and pierced Polycarp. And so much blood came out that it extinguished the fire. They then took his body and they burned the bones. That's Polycarp. That's the experience of Smyrna. Notice forth with me the persecution which they expected. Look in verse 10. Fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison. Ye may be tried, and ye shall have tribulation ten days. Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. Well, that surprised you. I just read about the tribulation and the poverty, the pressure from the Jewish synagogue. So I would expect that the next verse says, but it's all coming to an end. Well, that's not what it says. He says, though you have been persecuted, what you can expect is more persecution. It's not over yet. If this letter is written in AD 96 or AD 98, right around there, then I know from history, studying the Roman emperors, that the persecution in Smyrna actually will not end until 350 AD. If we are around 100 AD, hey, church, you still got another 250 years. You still have Diocletian, you still have uh, Domitian, you still got several emperors. You haven't seen the worst of it. So he says two things to him. Fear not. Fear thou not. None of those things which thou shalt suffer. If I could suggest it would have been more helpful. If he had said, fear thou not, for thou shalt not suffer them any longer. But there is no promise that the sufferings are coming to an end. There is a promise that they are going to continue. Yet even in the face of persecution, fear not. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison. Nothing new about that, but it's going to keep happening. Prison in the early centuries wasn't just like a 60-day sentence, a weekend job. No, when you went to prison, usually it was a holding pen for the real punishment, which is going to be execution or, or lashing or whatever it might be. So you need to understand the worst is yet to come. He says... That you may be tried, you should have tribulation ten days. Volumes have been written on what the ten days mean. It's ten days. Does that mean ten, mean ten waves of persecution from Nero to Diocletian? Or, or ten days, is that the ten years of Domitian's reign? Or, or is it ten literal days? Here's what, here's what I tell you about it. Whatever it is, it is a literal time period. It is marked out. It is this long and it is no longer. Christ says, I know how long it will last and it will not last any longer than I say. There is no 
exception to persecution, but there will be an end to persecution. We tend to think of 10 days as a brief span of time. Maybe that's how the Lord meant for Samaria to take it. Though it may seem like that your trials will never end, the duration of these trials are very brief compared to the glory that follows after. Then notice, lastly, the promise which they heard in the last part of verse 10. Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. The church at Ephesus was counseled to be as they once were. The church at Smyrna is counseled to stay as they are. Just as those living around you are loyal to Rome, you be loyal to Christ. And it is natural for us to want to flee persecution, to compromise for convenience sake. But the message is not to escape the persecution, but to be faithful through it. Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. Five crowns mentioned in the New Testament. The crown of life is always connected to those who are faithful in persecutions. It's kind of like the purple heart. Everybody's not going to get the crown of life. Those who are faithful in suffering and persecutions receive the crown of life. And then he says in verse number 11, He that overcometh shall not be hurt of the second death. From Revelation chapter 20, we learn that the second death stands for the final judgment of all of those who die without Christ. The people in Smyrna live under the constant threat of death. It must have been every day, perhaps every week, that they hear of some other believer that has died. They, they lived every day in fear of the first death, but have no fear of the second death. <laughs> fear of the first one, but not the second one. And the text is not intended for you to flip it around and make it a threat. It's a promise to the overcomer. It's not dealing with the grounds of eternal security. It's dealing with the assurance of eternal security. So here we come to the letter to the church at Smyrna. There is no rebuke here because the fires of suffering purifies the church. And the problem is that as we contemplate this story, we have difficulty entering into the story. Because you and I don't know suffering for Christ. We have trials. Of tribulations, but who of us can stand tonight and say, I have suffered loss because I'm a Christian? And even if you could, you wouldn't, because what you have suffered is nothing compared to what they suffered. So, what do we take away from this letter other than a history letter, history lesson? I give you three words and I'm done. First of all, pray. Pray for the persecuted. Hebrews 13 and verse 3, Remember them that are in bonds as bound with them, them which suffer adversity as being yourselves also in the body. Tonight there are Christians around the world who are being killed for the cause of Christ. Over 60 nations where Christianity, Christians are being persecuted and just because you're not facing it in Milton, Florida doesn't mean that nobody else is facing it. We carry our Bibles openly. We come to church without repercussions. None of you will lose your job tomorrow because you were in church tonight. It's just pray for those who are in bonds and they're never on our prayer list. 
Do you know what I pray for? My needs. My health. My finances. My wants. But somehow, if we could get our eyes off of us for just a minute and consider somebody else. Pray. Here's the second word that I would give you, and that is prepare. I have no idea that religious persecution is coming to America. I do believe that our world, our country, is more hostile to Christianity every day than it was even when I was a kid. And it is possible that our children or our grandchildren sometimes suffer hardship for our faith. You may not face imprisonment, you may not face death, but you might have to make a choice between your job and church. You may have to make ties, break ties with family members. You may be called upon to make some small sacrifice for your faith. And the cold reality is that our Christianity mostly is shallow, it is selfish, it is carnal, and it's not strong for much opposition. So may tonight be a night of self-inspection. And think about what it, takes you out, what it takes to take you out of church. And think about the excuses for never giving a gospel witness. How easy it is to not give. And why do you and I not have any patience in trials? Why do we not have any peace in distress? Why is it that you and I don't have hope in time of trouble? So think about you. Third word, I'm done. Permit persecution, suffering into your life. Father, you know the weaknesses of my life. You know my carnal desires and you know my selfish thoughts. You know my wicked wants. You know the secret things of my heart. And I accept that it may be by your refining fire that is what is needed most to make me more like you. I accept that it is through trials. It is through suffering. It is through these things that the dross is burned out. And only then can I truly shine the light of Christ in this kingdom. Let's stand together tonight, shall we? Heavenly Father, thank you for your word tonight, this quick look at the church at Smyrna. And even as we go through this letter, we feel even unworthy, even commenting on their sufferings. Nothing we can say can do any justice to it. We, we, don't, ever, we don't dare for a minute to even think that we stand with them. There are some Christians that are just, they're just above our league. And that's how I feel about that church at Smyrna. That through all of their suffering, all of their trials, all the persecution, all the pressure, that when you looked at that church, you saw nothing to rebuke. And I think that if you were to visit our church, I don't think that would be the case. I'm afraid you'd find plenty to rebuke. And so I pray tonight, Lord, that you'd help us to look at it somberly, to use that letter to inspect our own life, how we live as a Christian, 
I dare not stand here and ask you for something. I'm not asking you tonight for persecution. But whatever it takes for my will to break, that's what I'm willing to do. Our piano plays for just a moment here.